Thank you for joining our podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. Stay tuned as together we'll study God's Word. So I got a question for you. Um, are you good? You good? How do you know? This is a recurring metaphor that we bring out. It's the timeline of eternity. Imagine eternity past, imagine eternity future, and this tape represents your life. This is your birth, this is your death. How do you measure if you're good? The recurring thought out there is you say you're good based on what happens here. Uh, How many friends on social media? How much money in your portfolio? How many degrees behind your name? How many startups? All that stuff, right? But in the kingdom of God, the reason we have this up, what we try to renew our mind with every Sunday, the first day of the week, is really asking, are you good? We want to prioritize being good out here in eternity. And if you're good out here, it assures in God's eyes, oh, you're good right here. Are you good? For the last nine weeks, we've been chasing David. And uh, we've been doing it with eight churches. It's been a movement really around the Bay Area from seven different denominations. Uh, David's mentioned 1,100 times in the Bible, second only to Jesus in popularity in the scriptures. Jesus has four biographies. You know that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus, uh, David has two biographies, uh, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicle are the biographies of David's life. And today we get to chase David to his grave. Uh, David is coming to the end of his tape, and he sees into eternity with the eyes of faith, much like what we sung about today with the voice of faith. And we see his priorities based on wanting to be good and prioritizing goodness out here. Does David have one last lesson for us as he faces his death? He does. Grab your message notes. Grab your Bibles, open your Bibles at 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Brian, what page did you say that was on? 300? Two or three? 397 in your message notes. Here's our big idea, everybody, and it's in your notes, but it'll be on the screen too. Uh, the big idea is this. A good life invests in the tomorrows more than the yesterdays. A good life invests in the tomorrows more than the yesterdays. And here's the reality. The further out the tomorrows you're investing in, the better your life is. Uh, Last week, Renee, who was here teaching, talked about how David, it's actually in the, the story on the page one, David is pulled out of battle because he's exhausted. David was a lot more than a warrior in his life, but his primary role in life was to be a warrior. And now that's taken away. It's a lot like life. The older you get, the more diminished your world gets. The smaller your world gets, the older you get. And suddenly David can't do anymore the very thing that put him on the map. He can't be a warrior. But David doesn't look back and just reflect and live in the past. He takes his diminished life and focuses fully on the future. Don't miss this. A future that outlives him. He is fixated on eternity at this point. That's what happens a lot when you get to death's door. Or as you get older, you reflect and you realize, oh my gosh, the things I thought that would bring me goodness on the tape, they just don't matter anymore. And so I want us to learn one last time, turn to page two, about some final lessons from David. Good life priorities, we're calling them. And here's the first. David invested in projects, and he would say this to us, that outlasted him. 
Let's pick it up in 1 Chronicles 28. Everybody there in the scriptures? 1 Chronicles 28. Here's what it says in verse 1. David summoned all the officials of Israel. This isn't his deathbed, but it's pretty close. And so he's bringing his team, his power team, if you will, to assemble at Jerusalem. And King David rose to his feet and he said, listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house, at which you would ask, why? What's David trying to do? Why was he so fixated on a temple? Did David want to change the skyline of Jerusalem, make it a world-class city? Did David hear of the pharaohs building uh, pyramids? And he's like, I want my own pyramid. It's not going to be a pyramid. It's going to be a temple. What's going on? Did David want a plaque on the temple in memory of King David? No, this temple will never bear his name. He's, he's passionate about a temple that will never have his name on it. And so he goes on. Let's keep reading. I had it in my heart to build a temple as a place of rest for, look at this next line, for the ark, oh, I didn't put it in the notes, sorry. It's in the notes, it's not on the screen. For the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. I made plans to build it, but God said to me, you're not to build a house for my name because you're a warrior. You shed blood. Those words, the ark of the covenant, very important in the Old Testament scriptures. I don't have the time to go through it. Google it. Uh, look at a, a, a godly or biblical website. The ark of the covenant represented the presence of God in the Old Testament. And if you follow the life of David and the life of the Israelites, they were passionate about protecting the ark of the covenant because it's where God's presence dwelt. And so they build this temporary temple called a tabernacle. It was tents. We talked about that. But David wanted something more glorious now that they had a city. But here's what he's saying in this passage. Listen to me. He's saying to Israel, you don't need me anymore. And you don't need a replacement for me. You need the presence of God himself in the midst of your individual and your communal life. I want the presence of God to be central for the people of God. I care more about the Lord's name than my fame. That's what he's saying. That's so important, my friends. It's so important because Israel gathered and stopped gathering, gathered and stopped gathering. And there were times where God prophetically spoke to Israel and said, I'm not even part of your gathering. You're part of religious activity and I'm not even there. One of the last books written in the, Old, in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, Jesus personally wrote letters to seven churches. And in one of the churches, he's like, I'm standing at the door and knocking. The metaphor is this. You're gathered in your church. I'm, not, I'm out there. David is saying, I am passionate about one thing. As a king, God used me to take us somewhere. You don't need me. We all want our heroes, right? Even in Christendom. He says, it's more important you have God then you have me. That's why he wanted a temple. I care more about the Lord's name than my fame. Friends, that's what will carry PCC long into the future. It's what has uh, enabled PCC to be prevailing to this point. That it's not about PCC. We don't want the Maple Street shelter to come away and them going, what a great church. We want people to come away saying, what a great God. That's our desire and drives everything we do. Jump to 1 Chronicles 29, look at verse 2, he continues. David says, with all my resources, I provided for the temple. In other words, I'm all in, I'm vested. 
Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, and if you knew David, he not only was uh, desirous of building out the temple, he was desirous of building in. He architected the furniture. He created the colors. He had a details plan for this temple. And he said, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. And here's, here's a key word. Over and above everything I provided for this holy temple. In other words, David says, you know what? On this tape, we had an offering I gave then. Then there was another offering I gave then. I'm giving to the end, over and above, because this is so important to me. Although David's dream is shattered, friends, he didn't let the dream die with him. He leveraged his influence in such a way that the dream would outlast him. He was taking all he was on the tape and ensuring that there'd be a better tomorrow for people he would never meet, never see. He wanted the fame of God and the legacy of God to endure. David was investing in a tomorrow he would never witness in a way he would never regret. Let me say that again. David was investing in a way for people who he had never witnessed in a way he would never regret. A lot of times I know for anime, we, um, you know, like you, we are, have been involved long enough walking with the Lord. We get a lot of letters, a lot of invitations to invest with great missionaries and great causes and the G4 challenge. And we think, oh my gosh, here it is again. But we think of this day and go, wow, how Will we want to live today and disperse our resources today in a way that on this day, we'll look back on 2019 and not regret it. That's the good life, my friends. And that's what David was saying. Not only did David say, Jesus said it, okay? If you don't believe David, believe Jesus, everybody. Look what it says in um, Matthew chapter 6. Look at this. Jesus in his most famous sermon said this. Don't store up treasures for yourselves in heaven, uh, I'm sorry, don't store up treasures for yourselves on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up treasures for yourself in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. We all live in that tension, right? We're responsible for providing here on the tape. But Jesus says, don't let that be your only responsibility. Let your priority be of investing over here. And then he said this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, Jesus says, you know what? If I ever want to see where your heart is, I'm not going to look at the size of your Bible. I'm not going to look at your perfect church attendance record. I'm going to look at your bank account. And I'm going to see how you steward your stuff. Because your stuff leaves a money trail, you ready? Right to your heart. And if I ever want to see where your heart is, just show me what's going on with your stuff. Look at the bottom of page two and let's see how we're doing, not us, but how the American church is doing with the stuff. Bottom of page two, these are stats that are live. Uh, I can document all these. You can text me or email me if you want to know. My email, by the way, is brianr at wearepcc.com. Um, first of all, the church is not good with giving away its stuff. I'm so glad we're different than this, but the average American church only gives 2% of its resources off the campus. The average American Christians only give away 2.5% of their stuff, not just to a church, but to any good cause. Even in the depression, the great depression, people gave more away than they do today. 
Only 5% of U.S. Christians tithe. A tithe is a statement that began in the Old Testament. It's called a tenth. In the New Testament, Jesus in Matthew 24 affirmed and confirmed the tithe. He said, words of Jesus, you should tithe, right? It's just a way of human flourishing. Yet the average American household is doing something with their stuff. They're spending it on themselves. The average American lives on 115% of their income. That's live from nerdwallet.com. It's not even a Christian website. The average American household debt with credit debt, it's not mortgage, just credit debt, consumer debt is around $7,000 a year. See, we've got to be countercultural in this. And you're thinking, oh, geez, there's geez getting in my pockets. He wants my money. I don't want your money. I want something way more valuable than your money. I want your heart. God wants your heart. I could not be your shepherd if I didn't want wholehearted devotion from me, from us. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, you want to know where your heart is? Look at your resources. Look at your bank account. Look at how you deploy your resources. I want to show you a modern day David. He's actually the founder of our church. His name is Carl Johansson. He, Carl, right now is living right here. He died about three years ago. This video was taken about four years before his death, and it tells the story uh, of when PCC was able to buy this 15-acre property. Watch this. I said, yes, I wanted to start. 22 people met with us at our home August 14, 1951, and we started looking for property. And Andy Odstead, who developed Farm Hill, most all those homes there, he came to our rescue. His sister had sang in our choir. He says, I know a piece of property you might be interested in. It's a, it's a 10 acre estate. It's for sale for $115,000. And we thought that was too much. 75,000 was thought would be the top. And I told our congregation, well, it's just too good a property. We gotta buy it. And we went into a building fund drive Westerdahl told us, well, let's get a, a, the professionals here to help us raise the money. We've been throwing one building fund after another, so we did. There's a Christian group from Los Angeles, they came in. We met with our board, and the first thing he did was pass pieces of paper around and says, now I want you now to write down what you think each one can give to the fund. Well, we really didn't like to do that, but that was part of the game, so we did. And then the one who got the highest number would be chairman. Well, it fell upon me to be chairman. I went to my office the next day and I got a call from the man we hired to help us raise money. And he asked me, is this your pledge? He put it up in front of me. I made a pledge for $4,000. Now, mind you, I've just been finishing another pledges we had there. And he said, if you're, that's all you can do, might as well forget the fund drive. And he tore the card in half in front of me. He says, uh, where's your faith? I says, well, I made a pledge for $10,000 at that time. And I came home and told my wife, Millie, and she had a nervous breakdown. He says, says, I pay the bills, even Chris, where are we gonna get the money to pay, pay this? Well, he said, you gotta have faith to, to do the job. 
because money runs downhill. If you don't do that, your fund drive is not going to go. We raised at that point $198,000 in pledges, which was really something for us. In 1960, on Thanksgiving, we dedicated the building we moved into, the multi-purpose building. Then in 1975, our, our present building was completed. And uh, that's how we came about in establishing Peninsula Covenant Church in Redwood City. Awesome. The majority of our original members, there's only like three or four still alive. The majority of them are here. They're the great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 12 talks about uh, that surround us. And they are looking down, uh, you know, from eternity. Do you think they regret over and above giving? Do you think the people, when this building was being built in the 70s and the community center was going bankrupt and they had already taken an offering and we're doing a fund drive for this and suddenly a million dollars it cost to get that parcel of land, the community center. And so they went into another fund drive, as David said, over and above what they were doing. Do you think they're regretting the fact that they gave over and above so they could have a community center so people who had never set foot in a church through sport could hear the gospel? They didn't even see a day when through the community center we'd be teaching PE in the grammar schools five days a week on nine Redwood City campuses. Do you think they regret giving over and above? They were living for uh, the line, not the tape. And David, as he's facing death's doors going, you know what? I would do it again. I'd invest in projects that outlast me. Now, secondly, really fast, the second thing he says is this. Invest in relationships, page three, that outlive you. Invest in relationships that outlive you. Look what he says. He pulls his son, Solomon, it's such a beautiful, we don't have time to go in it, but a beautiful exchange. Like, watch out for this, Solomon. Do this, Solomon. I blew it here. He's just, it's just like a sage to a son giving a final, final uh, counsel. And he says this in verse 9 of chapter 28 of First Chronicles. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father. Look at this. He goes at the heart again. Serve him with wholehearted devotion. And, this is important for us around here, a willing mind. Don't throw your brain out, Solomon. Give all your heart and give a mind yielded to the Lord. Let God ye, uh, mold your mind. In other words, he's saying, Solomon, I'm at the end of my tape. And you know what my biggest regrets are? When I was half-hearted in my discipleship with the Lord Jesus. And so I'm saying to you, because you're going to outlive me, I will be out there. You won't have my voice. Give all yourself, all of yourself to following the Lord. You know, that's so important, my friends. In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews says it this way. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25. It's in your message notes, and uh, Ron will find it because I'm jumping ahead. It'll come up on the screen. He says this, let us consider how we may spur one another on. Oh, I don't have it in the slides. Uh, how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds, encouraging each other, and all the day more as and all the more as you see the day approaching. The author of Hebrews says in ha Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, let's spur each other on. You know what that word spur means? To irritate. Let's irritate each other. 
Another rendering is let's incite each other. One paraphrase, I love this. Let's consider how we may start a riot of love and good deeds. Isn't that what it's all about? See, David knew and Jesus knew this. It takes more than Jesus to live wholeheartedly. Before he was going to his death, it's called the Upper Room Discourse, John 14, 15, 16. That's in essence what Jesus said. He said, I'm going to heaven. You need more than me to be wholehearted in your devotion to me. I'm sending my Holy Spirit. And then he said in John 15, you need each other. And then he said, I'm leaving my word. You need the word. Do you have a community of relationships around you to help spur you on Truth tellers, grace givers, soul sharpeners, perspective providers. What is Solomon doing, uh, David doing to Solomon here? He's giving him a perspective that people in their youth don't have. We say it this way, you need pacers, racers, tracers. Pacers are the men and women who've journeyed intimately and wisely with the Lord who are older than you. Who was David's pacer early on in his life? The prophet Samuel. Samuel saw in David what his own father didn't see in him. Everyone else saw a ruddy little boy and a shepherd that wouldn't even qualify. Samuel saw a king. Do you have older godly people speaking in your life? And I want to speak to the older godly people in the room. This isn't the time to coast. This is the time to look forward and invest in the generation behind you. So many of you are doing that, and that's what makes us great as a church. I love that about us. You need racers, peers in your life that are spurring you on, irritating you, inciting a riot of loving good deeds. Who was David's racers? Nathan was one after he sinned with Bathsheba. Jonathan was one. Jonathan was the guy who was the king's son who would never be king and didn't let jealousy get in the way of their relationship. We didn't go into this, but he gave him his robe, the royal robe. He took off his armor and gave him his armor and said, you are going to be the warrior I will never be. You will be the king I will never be. We need that. Peers in our life. Who in your life cares more about uh, your life to talk more about sports or the latest current events? Who spurs you on to make you consider this day? And then we need tracers. We need people behind us, the next generation. And we're, we're going full throttle with family ministry with this. Because whoever wins the kids wins the city. And we care about that. We've got to turn our attention towards that. Who is David's tracer? We're seeing it right here. It's Solomon and others. So David is saying at the end of his life, he's saying first and foremost, invest in projects that outlast you. Invest in relationships that will outlive you. And then he dies. He's done. I love how Renee, in the book Chasing David, finishes up the story. I think it's pertinent. I'm going to wrap it up with this and then we'll pray. He says this in his book. As I read my Bible on the slopes of the city of David, I suddenly see the point. And this is the whole point of our series. The hero of the story is not David. It's God. The mistake I've made in the past is trying to see David as a heroic example of moral behavior. But David's not a hero. You ready? He says, David's us. David is an ultra high def picture of what people are like. He's far from the ideal human, but he's the classic human who lives with ups and downs, 
inconsistency, mistakes, triumphs, blow it, all that a person can have in full intensity. He said, I think David is in the Bible to show what it's really like to be in a relationship with God, a real relationship, to love, question, argue, complain, to fight, to leave, to rebel, to return, and yet never be unloved by God. And then at the close, he says this, I've seen now through all David's story, someone is chasing David, someone who never lets up, and it's not Saul, and it's not his enemies, it's God. He keeps chasing David wherever he wanders, into the valleys, into the caves, into the throne rooms, into the bedrooms, always eager to call him home. And the final word from Renee, our final word to you is this, he's chasing you too. This amazing God of the universe is chasing you. And if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you would see that. Into obedience and into rebellion, God is chasing you because he wants your human flourishing. He wants you to live, you ready? A good life. And a good life isn't determined on the tape. It's determined a thousand years into eternity. Jesus came to give you a good life that you could never have. The message of the gospel is this, and then we'll wrap it up. You are more loved than you would ever dare to imagine by the God of the universe, and you are more broken and sinful than you would ever recognize in and of yourself. And Jesus saw our rebellion, and he came to earth and said, literally, John 3, 17, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to save you. And if you would turn to me, I would give you the gift of an internal operating system so you could grow into the person I meant for you to be. So as we close, I wanna ask, have you said yes to Jesus? Yes to the God who is pursuing you. As we close, I'm gonna give you that opportunity. The band's gonna come up and we're gonna close in one more worship song, but let's close in prayer. Everyone bow your head and let's, whether you've said it before, or you're gonna say it for the first time, let's collectively in our hearts say yes to Jesus. Lord, we wanna live a good life. None of us, I don't believe anyone here wants their life to be a moral train wreck or disaster, especially when we face you in eternity. I thank you that you come to us from eternity right now. And if you could go knee to knee, eye to eye, hand to hand with us, you would say to us, I love you. You've run from me. I've run after you. Receive this gift of forgiveness and eternal life. So now maybe for the first time you could say, or if you said it before, repeat this to the Lord. You could say yes to Jesus. And prayer is just expressing your heart. So you can make my prayer your prayer. Jesus, yes. I agree with you. I have run from you. I have been destructed to myself and others. And today I'm turning from that to you. I receive your gift of eternal life. I receive your forgiveness. I would believe what you did on the cross is more than ample to forgive my sins today, tomorrow, yesterday, all the way till I die. Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. Step into my life. I'm giving you mine. Praying this in your name. Hey, while we're still in prayer, if you prayed with me for the first time, if you said yes to Jesus, I wanna close by praying for you. I'm gonna invite you as we're 
close it in prayer, raise your hand. You said yes to Jesus for the first time. Don't be shy, just raise it up. I wanna say, I wanna pray with you. First time, yes, Jesus. If you're saying yes to Jesus for the second, third, fourth, fifth time, renewing that yes, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? So Jesus, we say yes. We thank you. Make us a community of men and women who are broken and point to you, who care more about your fame and your name than our own. Let us not just be hearers of the word, but doers. We pray it in Christ's name. And everyone said? Thank you for tuning in to our message podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. We would love the opportunity to connect with you more. We are located in Redwood City, California, and you can find us online at wearepcc.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by simply searching for We Are PCC.